Hello everyone, it's Dimpner here from I Love Real Estate. Today I want to share with you part two of the great real estate reset of 2021. And this, this particular session that I want to share with you now is very, very important because what I do, and I'm going to cut across to a live event that I did, but what I, I want to share with you is the, the, the underlying fundamentals that are driving our economy right now. Because when you understand those, you can really start to, to put into perspective what has happened and what we're doing right now and actually what how you can take advantage of what's happening into the future. Because the future is actually quite clear. And when you understand these underlying fundamentals, you're gonna see that there really is only one course of action. So I want you to really listen hard to this. Make sure you've got your pens and paper ready because I'm gonna go through a lot and a lot of stuff with you. And remember, if you wanna get the, the full version with all the video and everything, just head across to my website. Uh, it's www.iloverealestate.tv and you can actually see all the video that goes with all of the slides and everything that I'm actually talking about. So listen up, get your pens and paper ready and I'll see you on the other side. You know, it's funny when we look at the cost of COVID, it's not funny, it's actually frightening. Um, and, you know, the, the cost of, of COVID, COVID globally is around about $16 trillion. That's a lot of money across the globe. Um, direct cost to Australia is over $200 billion. The estimated cost to Australian universities, just the university industry, $47 billion or one point. Uh, 1.3 billion hours um, in the in loss of sorry that's loss in pro, uh, productivity and 16 billion to the universities. It's incredible just the cost that this pandemic has caused the world. Travel industry, you know, tourism, hotels, hospitality—they have been hit really, really hard. But you know what? There's a lot of industries that have made a lot of money. All your big tech markets, they've all absolutely soared. So there have been winners and losers. And we've learned a lot from COVID, even the pros and cons of working from home. Things like, you know, more flexible schedule, work from any location, no commute time. So all that time for me, I mean, I used to travel all over the country. For me, I've bought back all of that time. Um, you know, time with your family, working from home. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of benefits and there's a lot of learnings that are good things to have actually come out of COVID as well. And the importance of um, relationships and connection with one another. I think that's something that's understated. Factors leading our economy. Let's get into this. So the first thing I want to talk about is the government stimulus and where we're at with that. The economic fundamentals and then also the historical market cycles, which I'll talk to you about this afternoon. So let's talk about the government stimulus first up. Job seeker has now finished. It is, it is no more. We have job keeper, and that's ending in the end of March. It has been reduced, but it's now ending. Uh, we have job trainer, that's actually ongoing. So we have a, a whole um, raft of things to be laid out throughout the next couple of years, which are all about retraining and training people and apprenticeships and things like that. We have the uh, home builder, which is ending at the end of March. 
Um, but it, uh, you know, you've got till July, June, sorry, the end of June to actually start it. So that's the, that was the $25,000 grant. It's now the $15,000 grant uh, for building a new home. Uh, then, and that's obviously ongoing. And then we've got the well, ongoing till the end of end of March. Then we've got Job Maker, which is ongoing. This is all of the government stimulus. This is the the roads and the bridges and the you know the schools and the hospitals and all of those things, both at a federal level and also at a state level. And that the impact of that, I'll talk about that a little bit later this morning. But the impact of that is has a lot more longevity, and it won't actually have a direct impact into the economy for about another year yet. But when it hits, it's going to be very substantial. And then you've got your state stimulus as well. You know, you've got your first home buyers grants, you've got your stamp duty relief, you've got builders grants in some cases, right across, you've got all sorts of, um, you know, um, small bonuses for regional areas and all of that kind of stuff happening as well. Look, has it worked? It has. And if you see here, you know, this is the, um, the, the prediction from the IMF as to how Australia will respond. So this is the uh, gross domestic product. So this is a, a measure of our economy, if you like, and how we were going back from 2015 through to 2019. And then we had the crash here in, uh, in 2020. So this is the, you know, this is a negative GDP, which we, we all know about. We actually went into recession for two, two um, quarters. So we, we went into negative. So that's, a, that's con two consecutive quarters is considered to be a recession. We haven't had one of those since the early 90s. Remember that recession we all had to have. And, but this is the kickback. This is, the, um, this is where we expect the, or the IMF expects the rebound to be. And you can see it's quite strong. If you, if you think about pre-COVID, where we're at and what the economy was like, these figures are actually better, slightly better than that. So, you know, everything is predicting that path will continue. And you can see this little bump here in the, uh, the, the GDP for, um, for COVID. And this goes right back to 1984. So you can see what happened then. This chart here, I think, is very, very impactful. And the reason I'm so excited about this chart is because it shows us in comparison to the rest of the world. Now, this is the government stimulus that's been handed out. And you can see the blue part of the government stimuluses is in the form of loans and guarantees by the bank, by the governments. Now, the orangey bit down here is um, in the form of direct payouts to the people or the businesses. You can see here, Australia, how, how little we have in loans and how much of the amount there is actual, actual handouts. Now, what that means is that as we go through the next, um, the, the next few years, we are going to be better than the rest of the world. We will accelerate more than the rest of the world. Why? Because if you think about it, say you're a business or an individual through COVID and, you know, you were really struggling and you got some kind of handout, but it was in the form of a loan. Once things start to go well, you've still got to repay that loan. So your recovery is going to be much, much harder and much, much longer than if it was just, here's some money, guys, you know, get through this period, we'll be right on the other side, which is what we did here in Australia. Canada is, is, is probably the next best in this regard, but this chart is, is, 
you know, it, it, it says a lot for what the Australian economy is going to do and what we have done through the whole thing. The other thing is you've got to think about other uh, periods of time where we've gone into a recession, okay? And I've got up here, this is COVID. So you can see there the length of time. Now, this is actually in the share market, which is, which is um, uh, it shows you what's happened uh, across the board from a from business perspective as well. So it takes into account property as well. But the, the, the recession there in, in the drop in the, um, the S&P 500 and how quickly it recovered back to where it was for COVID, very quick, short space of time. It's actually a little bit over 100 days. Then we look at Black Monday. Now, Black Monday, it took a total there of, uh, what is it, 402 days to get back to, to uh, the trading level it was at pre that, that drop. Now, that was back in the late uh, 80s. Then we had the global financial crisis, GFC. It took a total of 1,379 trading days for it to get back. Uh, the dot-com bubble, which was, you know, this was actually the... Um, the early, early 2000, 2000 to 2001, end of 2001, 2002, 1,808 trading days. The next one here was the Nixon shock. There was 1,899 days. And then the Black Thursday, which was the, the great crash, uh, took 7,000 days for that to actually recover back. So COVID's pretty mild in comparison to a lot of this. But again, I draw your attention to the, your attention to the um, the mainstream media, you know, think back a few few weeks, a few months or whatever. It was the, the greater than the Great Depression. Well, that's crap. It's not at all. In fact, it's much milder than anything else that we've seen in the last couple of decades, De a couple of well, last century, we may as well say. So let's look at why that's the case. Let's have a look at the underlying fundamentals. Now, I'm going to share with you the first 10 fundamental economic drivers before we have a bit of a cup of tea. Um, so the, I probably should have said to this before, but the, this morning we're going to go through till about 11, 11.30, something like that. We'll have a lunch break around about oh, 1.30, 2-ish thereabouts. And then we'll go through to about 5, 5.30 this afternoon. And they are all Sydney, Melbourne, daylight saving time. So if you're in Queensland or somewhere else, you have to work out you know, what your time span is. Okay. Uh, so the first uh, first 10 economic drivers, because the last two are pretty impactful. They are really going to blow your socks uh, when I do these ones this afternoon. So make sure that you're there after lunch, because these are probably the two most impactful ones I'm going to cover this afternoon. But let's get through the first 10. All right. The first one is debt levels. Now, everybody's concerned about the debt level and how, you know, it's high and we're going to take generations to have to be able to afford to repay it and all of this kind of stuff. Let's just look at us compared to some of the majors, US, Eurozone, and Japan. We entered COVID with a very low debt. Our debt level to GDP was much lower, like hugely lower than these other countries. In fact, all of the rest of the Western world. So yes, the debt is high, but we can afford it. So the debt that we've, cooped, we've, we've racked up is actually affordable because we started from such a low position. A lot of these other countries, they started in a high position and then their debt levels even much higher as a percentage of their GDP than us. 
So I think that really needs to be put into context. And when you do that and you start to look at the recovery of, you know, getting back to surplus, the budget deficit, and we go back a hundred odd years, you know, World War One. Look, look at the deficit that we went into there and look how long we stayed in deficit. Look at World War II, much, much greater period of time that we stayed in deficit there and much, much deeper uh, as a percentage of our GDP than we saw in, um, you know, in the, uh, in the this time around with, with COVID. And then we have the deficit that we've gone into here with, uh, with COVID, but look how steep the recovery actually is. Now, this is the expectation. We've already gone, done some of that um, as, you know, and this is the, the, uh, the RBA has come out with this and said, well, this is where we expect to be. Um, this is the recovery that's, that, you know, that, that is forecast, et cetera. So our recovery is gonna be pretty swift. When we look at individual spending ratios, they're all up, look at this. Through COVID, we had massive, massive savings going on, savings. Now, this is not the story that the mainstream media is telling you. Everybody's in debt, everybody's going broke, everybody's on Centrelink. It's actually not the case. You know, the majority of Australians were actually in a net savings position through COVID. They were actually able to improve their circumstances, which I know if you're sitting there and you lost your job, you're hurting. You're going to go, oh, well, that's not me. But the fact is that that's, that is actually what caused the recession because people were sitting on their money. They weren't spending it. So that caused the economy to go into recession. It's only now that that savings is, is coming down. They're not saving quite as much that we're starting to spend again, that we're back into positive territory from a, um, from a, a, a recession perspective. We're, we're back, we're out of recession. We were for the last quarter of last year. And the next one really flows on from that. And that's really about consumer confidence. Now, again, I've shown you back right here through to GFC. GFC confidence was down for a long period of time. And, and the economic impact of that was much, much greater. This is not, because as I say, all those other things about the savings ratios and everything, this, the impact of this is actually really short-lived. We went much deeper from a consumer confidence perspective than we did in GFC. But the reason for that is the health scare that happened. So, you know, here we didn't just have a money issue. We had, oh, my God, am I going to die issue. And that scare just pulled everybody back. But when it, we kind of got into it, what COVID actually meant and the likelihood of death, uh, particularly in Australia, the, you know, the consumer confidence bounced back very, very quickly. And that's what you need to have a buoyant economy. This is just another chart showing the uh, post-GFC period, the post-global uh, yeah, financial crisis period, et cetera, and how we responded this time around. So public spending is important. And, um, you know, this, this spending as we get into 2021 here is going to be uh, important to our recovery. Now, throughout the day, I'm going to be referring to Sydney and Melbourne a fair bit. And I don't mean to miss the other cities out or anything or the rural areas or whatever. But the reason I'm saying that is because Sydney and Melbourne have the most impact on the economy. And you can see that in this chart. Sydney and Melbourne are the key drivers here because they have the most spending, the national spending. And you can see Sydney's obviously the highest and then Melbourne and then the other cities kind of fit in thereafter, including some of the regional areas. So when I talk what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne, it's going to be very, very reflective of the economy at large because it represents the largest part of the, uh, the national economy. 
I hope I'm not getting too heavy for you guys here. I mean, I know this is pretty, pretty heavy. If you're not account, you're not accounts, you're not lawyers, you're not, you know, you're not into economics and stuff. I get that, but give it to me. Are you getting this? Give it to me in the chat room. Tell me if you're getting it because I don't want to talk over anybody. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to oversimplify either. So tell me, give it to me in the chat room. Tell me you're getting it. You're getting it. Yep. Lots of yeses. Getting it. Getting it. Fantastic. Okay. I'll keep going. Number three, I think three and four are probably the most important because these are the basis of economics. This is economics 101, pent up demand and undersupply. So we entered COVID in an undersupply. Why did we do that? Well, let me explain. Okay, we need to, I need to take you back in history, well, recent history, to 2017. Now, on the lead up to 2017, we had Sydney and Melbourne house prices roaring through the roof. And uh, the reasons for that were, the uh, you know, there's a lot of hype in the market. There was a lot of overseas investment in the market, particularly from China. Um, and we were able to lend to overseas people, etc. And the markets were going crazy. So Sydney and Melbourne were definitely overheated in the uh, at the end of 2017 and the lead up to that. But then what happened was APRA looked at this. Now, APRA is the governing body that controls the banks. And they said, Sydney and Melbourne overheated. We need to do something about this. How can we do that? Let's cut the money supply, one of the normal tactics that they use. So what they did was they put all these restrictions on the banks, you know, let's bash the banks. And it's an easy to bash the banks because it, it, you know, it has public perception that it's okay. You know, they're a big bank. They can, you know, let's all bash the banks. And look, you know, the, the banks may have done some things that were, you know, out of out of control and weren't quite good and whatever else in the lead up. But the fact is, when you bash the banks, what that means is the money supply contracts. Now, when you don't have the ability to be able to borrow in an economy, the, the economy contracts. And they basically threw all of Australia, not just Sydney and Melbourne, but all of Australia into this downturn and property prices started to go down. New, um, New Zealand got it right. Now, New Zealand had the same problem in Auckland. But in New Zealand, they said, oh, we've got an Auckland problem. Let's fix Auckland. And they restricted LVRs or loan to valuation ratios in Auckland. And Auckland cooled. The rest of the country survived. That didn't happen in Australia. APRA came out and they bashed us with a, with a sledgehammer. So people in, you know, um, Townsville, who are struggling to survive from the floods and whatever else, um, you know, and bushfires elsewhere and all these other places, Alice Spring, anywhere, Darwin, who's been struggling for years, they all died a very slow death because no one could get financing because the banks had to restrict their money policies because that's what APRA told them to do. So, you know, there was all of these restrictions. Then we had the Royal Commission and all this. By the time the Royal Commission came out, it was just the biggest puff in the wind ever because any of the things that actually needed to be fixed should have been fixed five years ago um, not not in the middle of a recession caused by APRA now I've been very vocal about APRA and how and all through that period of time you know I called them the terrorist of Australian economy and all sorts of stuff and I got a lot of flack over it but I was right they were and they killed it and they recognized that they killed it by mid 2019 and the economy was was floundering 
So they lifted all the restrictions that they'd put on the banks. And then they say, oh, please, bank, you know, on bended knee, you've got to start lending again. So the banks are like, what the hell do you want me to do here? You know, so then they started to release a few things, but they've still got heavy restrictions. And that didn't change until 2020. I'll get to that in a minute. So then we had this brief reprieve between mid-2019 through to uh, the beginning of 2020, where property prices started to go up again, because that was what was the response to the underlying demand and supply curves. See, when you get a demand and supply curve, where they meet is called the economic equilibrium. Okay, that's when demand and supply are equal. When you have demand over supply, property prices go down. Sorry, when you have demand over supply, property prices go up. I just flicked the thing and I couldn't see it. When we have supply over demand, we have downward pressure on pricing. So we've got all of this pent up demand happening from 2017 all the way through. And we had, uh, so demand's going up and up. We want to borrow, we want to get in, we want to buy a property, we want to move out of home, we want to get into our first home, all of these things, but they couldn't because they couldn't get the finance to do it. Now, at the same time, supply was going down. I'll talk to that in a minute. Then we had that brief reprieve for that six months of the latter part of 2019, and then COVID hit and everything just went into shutdown. So again, we've got demand, 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 demand going up and up and up and up and up all through COVID, massive demand, and we don't have um, the supply to match it. So massive, massive um, over demand. And if you can see here, the next one I've got is under supply. Because through all of that period of time, once the, the big boys recognized that the market was going down at the end of 2017, they pulled back and stopped putting applications in for new developments. So the supply chain contracted and you can see that here. That's exactly what, you know, was going on, on through, um, through here. And that pullback is as a result of what was happening in, uh, because of APRA. This is very pronounced. You can see here, this is units because they're the big boys produce the units, right? The apartment buildings, et cetera. So you can see here, this was the, uh, the unit um, uh, applications going through here in um, 2017, how it pulled back, pulled back, and it hasn't, hasn't recovered yet. The big boys haven't started to, to get heavy on the applications, but I'm telling you they will through 2021. But is that gonna throw us back into oversupply? No, because it takes about two and a half years to get the, the big boys from the time they lodge their application through to actually completing the thing and having somebody living in it, two and a half years. So, so they've had all of this pullback, didn't, have, didn't, didn't start to get, get excited through 2020, um, only considering it now. So we've got all of that demand from the end of 2009, uh, 2017, brief reprieve for six months, build up all through COVID, et cetera, all through this period of time. And then for another two and a half years before we get supply. Those two factors alone, and this is right across the board, those two factors alone mean that we are in for an upward pressure in pricing for at least the next two and a half, three, four, probably five years before the supply chain actually meets up with what's happening with demand. Particularly, and it could even be stretched further than that, if 
if we see in that period of time, we open the borders for immigration, because that is only included on the supply, that the, the, the people that we have in the country right now. It's not taking into account new people coming in. So if we open the borders again, say, hey, you know, we're open for business again, you add that to it, it's going to push that timeline further out before we get to anywhere near economic equilibrium and certainly before we get to, to oversupply. And it's only in oversupply that a market will come down. Only in oversupply will a market come down. Well, that's not true. And if you restrict the, 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 um, uh, the, the ability to be able to finance because we can't get any money to do things. So, you know, the, the, demand, the, the demand is there, but the ability to be able to act is, uh, is there. So that gives you a bit of a background on the, the underlying demand and supply curve and what's happening in Australia, particularly from a housing perspective. Population growth will again contribute to a, be a factor of, of our growth because we have always been a country of immigration. In fact, if you go back through to colonization, our growth here in this country has been from immigration. Now, the long-term picture by the Australian Bureau of Statistics is still that by 2036, the Australian population is expected to be 32.4 million. By 56, it's expected to be close to 40 million. Sydney and Melbourne are going to get most of the growth. Sydney is expected to go to 6.6 by 36, 8.1 by 56. Melbourne is expected to go to 6.4 by 36 and 8.2 by 56. Melbourne is expected to outgrow um, Sydney in that space of time. Now, that, if you average that out, it works out to around about 154,000 new homes that we need to be building every single year. We are not doing that. We are not doing that. This just gives you, a, a, um, you know, an idea of how prices have gone over the long term um, from a, a base point here back in 1975 through to 2020. And there's, obviously, you know, there's, there's a massive upward swing there, as you can see. So we put population to that. And you can see, sorry, that's the, the population increase I'm talking about here and how the population has increased in each of those cities. That's what I meant to say. We, st we start to have a look at the um, a chart put out here again by the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics. And they, you can see there that Melbourne is in the long term expected to outgrow Sydney only by a little bit. But Sydney and Melbourne are where it's at. They will, from a natural growth perspective, they will outperform the rest of the country. So let's talk immigration, because obviously our borders right now are closed. Um, and immigration is our major increase in the long term. Short term, and I'm talking in the next six to 12 months, immigration numbers are going to be long non-existent. However, once the restrictions are lifted, and they will be eventually, it is reasonable to assume that the recent high levels of overseas migration will resume. In fact, I believe that they are going to increase. They're going to rise on what we had before. And the reason for that is because the government needs those tax dollars in order to pay for the COVID stimulus packages and deficit. We're going to need it. And the, the great thing about um, this is that the people who are coming in, and I'll talk about this in a, in, a, in a bit, when we open up the migration borders, the people coming in are coming from, you know, and I'll show you where the most, most activity is from, are coming in young, they're coming in skilled, and uh, they're coming in with money in most cases. 
because of our criteria and other things. There's a few family bits and, you know, you're bringing your uncle over or your brother over or your whatever else. But by and large, you've got to have a reason to come to this country and we've got to accept that reason. So let's just talk about the age. The median age of an overseas migrant to Australia is 26 years. The average age of an Australian, the median age of Australia is actually 40 years. So you know, we are bringing in a younger generation. They're coming in at prime baby breeding years, you know, job years, wanting a house years, you know, buying a car, having the most spending habits, all of those things, we're bringing them in where they are the most benefit to the economy. 61% of overseas migrants to uh, or arrivals into Australia are aged between 18 and 34. Australia will need their tax dollars in order to pay for and recover from the, the COVID deficit. Immigration, as interstate immigration is likely to continue uh, to the levels that it was at before. In fact, some areas may benefit more like Queensland than others. Um, but the thing is, when you talk about immigration, is that um, the, the response is immediate. So somebody lands on our shores, they immediately need somewhere to stay. They're immediately spending money. They immediately have to buy a car. They immediately have to buy food. Their immediate um, positive impact on the country. Housing, on the other hand, is slow to respond. And that slowness to respond means that they are, um, you know, it takes time to build a house. So we've got this lag effect happening. And across the Across the world, immigration is, we are the highest as a percentage of our GDP um, across all of these countries. In fact, places like Italy, Greece, and Japan are even negative. So we are right up there um, from an immigration perspective. And the, the viewpoint, when you, you look at the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Australian Bureau of Statistics and things like that, their view of, um, of, my, of population and population increase and things like that I find it quite amusing, but I'm a bit of a statistician and whatever else. I find this amusing. Have a look at this. So you can see this chart. Um, this is the, uh, the net migration from overseas, okay? So, so where they're coming from. So New Zealanders, yeah, they've come down. They're going to come back up. Uh, the blue one are from temporary education. Um, the, uh, the red one there is from uh, temporary work permits. The... the, the um, uh, the yellow one there is from permanent residents coming in. See how the V is there. They, they expect it to respond uh, through 2021. So by the end of 2021, this is what it's saying, the Australian Bureau of Statistics expects that the, uh, the immigration will be back up to close to where it was by the, um, you know, the beginning of COVID. But the thing that astounds me, or I don't, it's not astounding, it's just really quite funny or humorous, is the green one. Look at this. These are the Australians. Look at all those COVID babies in there. All that green bit there is all the COVID babies. <laughs> and there's going to be stacks of them. So a um, bit, of, bit, of, bit of fun there, but that's the reality. If you're locked up in a, in a house, what else are you going to do? So <laughs> the, this doesn't take into, a pack, in, into account certain pockets. And one of those pockets is Hong Kong. Now, when the national security laws were announced in Hong Kong by China and they were heavy-handed and all the rest of it, um, there was a, Australia actually offered the people in Hong Kong a safe haven. And that was part of the whole uh, start of the demise with China and the trade war and everything else. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, came out and said, 
Australia is actively considering offering safe haven to Hong Kong residents to come to the country after controversial national security laws imposed by China came into effect. The UK actually came out and said they're going to take three million. I was actually watching SBS this morning and the news and um, they've reiterated that. The uh, Boris Yeltsin over there has, has come out, what's his name, Johnson, has come out and, um, and said that, uh, you know, they're going to take, uh, you know, people from Hong Kong because of these national security laws. Now, this is very different to us taking in refugees. I mean, we took in about 12,000 refugees from Syria. And, and unlike a migrant, a refugee comes here and they immediately cost the, uh, the economy. Now, look, there's all the humanity, humanitarian things and all that. I'm just talking economically. They cost the economy. They do. They, you know, we, we've got to pay for the housing. We've got to pay for social security and all of those things. The people coming in from Hong Kong, Hong Kong is the, where are we? The um, 12th richest country in the world. One in seven people in Hong Kong are US millionaires. One in seven. So, you know, they're coming in here with, with, with a lot of money. And there was a very interesting um, survey. Well, it was a survey. It was research done by Credit Suisse. And, and this, this really amazed me. It was a survey done, oh, sorry, it was research done over a long period of time. And what they mapped was cash flows or money flows, capital flows, in and out of Hong Kong. And what they found was when money is outflowing from Hong Kong, okay, so an outflow of capital from Hong Kong, Sydney house prices go up. Look at that chart. This is this is crazy. Look at this chart. How how you know that it, it's it's pretty much exactly what happens every time we have an outflow of money from um, from Hong Kong. We have an increase in our property price, particularly in Sydney. The other thing is this was put out by uh, the realestate.com.au and it, it was just to show how many people were searching for properties in Australia from overseas. The top one was UK. Well, you know, I mean, uh, one, of, one of my Michaels comes from the UK and he's out here for a reason. Weather's not that flash. Um, and, uh, you know, their health system is nowhere near what ours is. The issues that they have over there are nowhere near what we have here in this country. America the same. I mean, you wouldn't want to be sick in America at the moment, I can tell you. And, you know, we really are the lucky country. New Zealand, well, that's a given. Um, Hong Kong's next. You know, this is the search engine here from Hong Kong, and this is in, in uh, any one month. Um, Singapore, and then you've got the, uh, you know, China there as well. So, you know, we start to take all of this into account. There is only one pressure on house pricing in Australia, and that is up. We have massive infrastructure spending, job maker. You know, when we when the whole COVID thing hit, it was like, hold the fort. You know, this is just the backstop. Job keeper, job seeker. Then we had, let's just try and get things going again. And we had home builder and that absolutely worked. I've got some figures for you on that shortly. Then we have um, the position of growth. So that's all about job maker. So this is about longer term projects funded by the government to, um, to create lots of jobs. And look, it's already working. This is the uh, a chart here of unemployment, and you can see um, as soon you know it's already started to come down. Once I'm a bit cynical here, but once job seeker started to reduce, and if I had the the figures, I couldn't get them for you today, I'm afraid. But the figures in January, you're going to see that drop substantially again because 
um, you know, it's not it's not economical to stay home and get five hundred and fifty dollars a week because you're not getting that. It's two hundred and fifty now, um, and you know that's making a big big difference. But this is this is a chart that I think is very important because this is the infrastructure spending. So this is just in transport and infrastructure spending is what is going to create those jobs. Um, and you know, I, I this this chart, I'm a realist here. This chart is not going to start to reduce here. So the announcements are there. Yep, it's all going to happen. It's all going to happen. But the reality is they're going to go over budget and they're going to uh, go over time. So this whole wave will actually be pushed out here. And I, I think it won't start to, to come off until the mid-20s. That's when we're going to see the fallback in some of these projects. Because it just takes that long. The government's red tape and everything else going on. It just takes that long to get them out of the ground and going. Number seven is cheap money. We have never in the history of the country had the interest rates as low as they are today. The official interest rate is 0.1% for God's sake. 0.1. Will it go into negative? Look, it has in other countries. I don't believe it will in this country, but it has it certainly in other countries. You know, when you look at the official interest rates uh, with uh, where the banks are at, um, you know, the standard variables up there close to close to five, but you know, the, the fixed terms are down here. And I've even seen um, some loans start with a one in front of them. Commonwealth Bank is coming out saying it's easier to borrow money now. When we had the, um, uh, the, the budget last year in October, uh, one of the big changes that hasn't, I don't think it's been registered yet, if it has, it's only just been legislated, um, was that the criteria for assessing an applicant has been eased. So that means that borrowing money is just going to be a whole lot easier. So all that rot that APRA carried on with back in 2017 and killed the economy, they really did kill the economy, you know, they're now everything's being thrown at the banking system, say, please, please, please lend some money, let's get this thing happening again. Um, and we are going to see a significant easing in, um, in uh, the, the, the flow of money. And it's already started, you know, the builders boost is having a, a massive impact. That's that massive surge there that we're seeing. That's all the builders boost. Um, and the first home buyers, you know, they're starting to kick up again. So it, it's starting in the right direction. One of the big global um, impacts is uh, the printing of money. Now, number eight is what we call quantitative easing. Quantitative easing means printing money or helicopter money. That's, that's the terminology for it. Um, now, these are US charts. I thought I'd show you the US charts first because the US have just gone crazy with the printing presses. They just turned them on like there's no tomorrow. And they did last time around as well. So this is GFC. This is the global financial crisis we see here. And you can see their quantitative easing round one, round two, round three, and how you know that gradually died down. It was unwound down here and then COVID hit. Bumpo, look at that. Massive surge in printing of money in the US. And that really shows the, the, um, the, the, the G7 central banks, how they have done exactly the same thing. This chart shows the same thing. These are the, you know, it shows you there the, um, the Bank of Japan. Uh, the US is this green one down here. This is Europe. And that is the other uh, central banks of the G10 countries. So again, I just, I just want to take you back to GFC. And the reason I'm doing that is because so you've got a reference point to be able to go, well, that's what happened last time. It's likely to be the same this time, or that is what's happening this time. 
The first thing is, if we go back to this chart over here on the left-hand side, that is the drop in interest rates. You can see there from over 5% right down to practically nothing um, in, uh, in the US. So the first thing that the economy does to recover is to drop interest rates. Bam, we've done that. This time round, if we look at this, we haven't had the capacity to drop interest rates as much as we did through GFC. So the impact of dropping interest rates has not been as great because we didn't drop from such high heights. We only had this bit here to drop from. And, but the quantitative easing, just to show you here in GFC, was $4.48 trillion. What does Australia look like from a printing money perspective? Look at that. Just, just get your head around that. This is when COVID hit. That is the quantitative easing that we are seeing through uh, what's happening here with, with COVID. Massive, massive response. And the reason that the response this time was so huge compared to what it was last time, and you can see back here, you know, what was happening there, because we didn't have the, uh, the, we, the ability this time to drop interest rates where they were. Plus, we also had the mining boom going on at the same time at that, that stage. Um, this is, I think, the most important chart that you are ever going to see, because what it shows is the direct correlation between printing money and asset prices. Now, when I say asset prices, I'm talking property, but I'm also talking the share market. Every time we turn on the printing presses, asset prices go up. Every single time there's more money in the economy to go around, what do people do with it? They buy hard assets like um, businesses, stocks and shares or property. Now, in Australia, the tendency is to buy property over and above shares. In America, it's the reverse. We are property centric in this country. And, you know, I take you back to this chart. This was when I was on stage following those clowns going that the property market's going to fall by 40%. Um, this was when I was on stage. This is, this is the period of time I was on stage here and they're going, the property market's going to fall by 40%, it's going to fall. It couldn't. The underlying fundamentals showed it couldn't. And it's not going to this time either. The underlying fundamentals are so strong. And this was what we saw in the aftermath of GFC when I was on stage. And that's what I predicted, that tsunami. We are property centric in this country. You know, we, we, our first tendency to invest is property. It's not shares. America is different. America, whether it's because we've come from convict stock and all of those things, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's why, I don't know. But they are very share centric and we are very property centric. And that's really what these numbers show, you know, um, 7.1 trillion dollars in residential real estate, three trillion in superannuation, two trillion in stocks and listed stocks, uh, one trillion in commercial property, 10.4 million dwellings, 1.82 trillion um, outstanding in mortgages, 51% of our wealth is held in real estate, 437,000 um, sales, um, total sales in, this is in 2019, I think it was, and 200 and, um, $267 billion transacted. So that's that's a normal year. You know, that's that's actually probably a little bit of a, a slightly down year because it was only six months of 2019 that was an up period. 
and we just look at pricing, you know, this is from a, pri a price point, if we're all even there at um, 2000, in, in uh, April of 2020, what actually happened from April in the varying markets. And sure, they went down a little bit, but they're all on that upward swing and that is going to continue. Melbourne got hit the hardest because of the second wave. But when you look at the upswing in COVID compared to other upswings that we've had, you know, you look at, at COVID, the upswing is very, very swift. The same thing over here. You know, you look at the other periods of time, like um, this one here, this was the, the 1994 to 1995. That's the, the last recession that we've had in this country. That's not what happened in COVID. GFC, this green one, you know, much, much longer to respond. We didn't have that in COVID. We're bam, we're already up there. You look at these pricings here. In fact, this one here shows it better. These are the, this is as at December of 2020. So, you know, just a little bit of time gone. Um, you can see here over the 12 months from, from December 2019 to, to December 2020, the Sydney property market actually went up by 3.7. Um, Melbourne was the only one of the capital cities that went down and it only went down by 0.9, <laughs> nothing. Um, Brisbane went up by 3.2, Adelaide went up by 5.3, uh, Perth was line ball there at 0.8, uh, Hobart 5.6, uh, Darwin 5.9 and Canberra 7%. Uh, now they're the capitals and you can see here the regional areas here as well. So, you know, admittedly, yeah, we had a, a January, February, which were up, but then we had the downward swing and then we had the upward swing. So we've had a bit of a roller coaster in the middle. But if you look at the year gone, that's actually what's happened. That's not what the media told you through all of last year. It was all gloom and boom and the property's going to fall by 40% and we're going to fall off a cliff at the end of, of September and off. What a load of rubbish. Absolute rot. And when you stimulate an economy, the best way to stimulate a, uh, an economy is to stimulate the property industry, construction. And that's exactly what they did. This is put out by the, uh, the uh, Property Council of Australia. They say that properties are the nation's biggest industry and the largest employer, accounting for 13% of Australia's GDP and 1.4 million jobs, more than the mining and the manufacturing industries combined. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has come out and said that they estimate that the, for every dollar of residential construction, it generates $3 in uh, activity across the border economy. And the ComBank's come out and said that for every $1 million reduction in spending in residential construction, it cuts seven jobs on a full-time basis. If you want to stimulate an economy, the best and most even way to do it is to stimulate the construction industry, which is all about the, the um, home builder grants that, that are floating around and you know, reducing shortly, but they're still there at the moment. Uh, this is again, the, the RBA have come out and said that their expectation is that the recovery is going to be very swift and very strong from a GDP perspective and unemployment is expected to come down very, very uh, promptly as well. So let's talk about the last one before we have a bit of a cup of tea. Um, we've got changing demographics. The fact is houses are getting smaller. Multi-generational households will change as millennials making up one third of the property market at the moment require their own homes. There will be a trend towards smaller houses for both millennials and the over 65 demographics. Now that is mainly due to affordability, but also lifestyle. 
I mean, the, the lifestyle is all about the baby boomers downsizing, et cetera, um, and going to desirable locations, not where they have to work. And the millennials, it's all about um, living where they, they want to live, close to work, et cetera, and investing elsewhere. We call them rent vesters. So there's going to be a lot more one and two uh, people households, meaning that we are going to need more dwellings for the same number of people. Again, putting upward pressure on pricing. There will be more renters. As the millennials move through their age brackets, we will soon have 40% of the population renting, partly because of affordability issues, but also because of lifestyle choices, as in living close to work and other things. First homeowners are back with a vengeance. You know, the first homeowners grants and things like that have really surged that part of the that part of the market. And as the first home buyers buy in, it filters up through all of the, the brackets because the, the people who are selling out of their first home and move into the next one, the next one, it just filters up. So, you know, we've seen a, a lot of change over the last year, and all of these fundamentals are playing out before our eyes. So what we need to do is to take stock of these things. So give it to me on the chat room. Who has, who has enjoyed the session this morning? Give that to me, first of all. Have you enjoyed the session this morning? Give it to me. Lots of you have. Love it. Love it. Okay. Very good. Exciting. Yes. Okay. Let me ask you another question then. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to use this information to take action? Who is excited about taking action? Give that to me. Are you excited about actually what this means for you over the next few years? Yes, lots of yeses, excited. Tell me you're gonna take some action. For goodness sake, please take action because that's what's gonna give you the results. Getting excited, saying you're excited, all of those things is great, loving it is great, but if you don't take action, you will not be part of this opportunity over the next five years. Action is where it's at. So give me action. Yes, lots of action coming through. Because it's taking action on this, these, this information, these fundamentals that will make you the money. You have the potential over the next five to six years to double, triple, if not quadruple your wealth and replace your income at the same time. Now, these kind of economic circumstances don't come together very often like they are at the moment. You need to get really excited about this and take some action on it. Wow, what did you think of that? As I said, you know, there's, there is so much underlying um, core economic reasons as to why the market is going to go in one particular direction right now. And 2021 has already shown us that. 2021 has already shown us that we're already in that upward swing. So you really gotta make sure that you're gonna capitalize on this, but also remember, don't just buy anything because there's some properties that are gonna scream and other properties that are going to be a little more sluggish, even though the market all around them may well be going up. So listen up to the, to the uh, following series that I've got coming up with the rest of the great real estate reset, um, and we'll get into a little bit more detail then. So I'll catch you on the next one. Bye now.